The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show was pre-recorded earlier this week. The 2021 Top 100 Investment Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative. Includes assets managed, revenue generated, regulatory record, staffing levels and diversity, technology spending, and succession planning. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money. This is Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. Presented by Edelman Financial Engines, ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Hi, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky. And I'm Soledad O'Brien, and you are listening to Everyday Wealth. Now, as many of you know, we record the show a little earlier in the week, but this week we're going to celebrate Earth Day. How long has Earth Day been around? I've been celebrating Earth Day since my very first job in Boston in the late 1980s. I think I remember Earth Day from being in middle school. So that might have been a precursor to Earth Day. Yeah, the idea around Earth Day now is invest in our planet, which I think is an amazing framing because in the past, Earth Days have been around how you save certain species or how to love the planet. And I actually think looking at it from a money perspective is very, very smart because often it's the financial markets and people in finance who have the wherewithal to make some of the decisions that move issues in a much bigger way. And over the last decade, people have really been buying into this notion for the first time that you can invest in bettering the planet and also make money. Yeah. We thought it would be a really good opportunity to take a a deeper look at exactly that, the financial impacts that the current climate crisis could have on economies, global economies, personal economies that we love to talk about. Later, we're going to walk through a kind of a primer on ESG, environmental, social and governance investing. We're going to be joined by Neil Gilfeder, Senior Vice President of Portfolio Management. and He'll be joining us for that. And then John McCafferty is going to join us again. He's a wealth planner. He's been with us before. Both of those gentlemen are with Edelman Financial Engines. So, of course, if you have a question or a topic that you'd like to see us cover on a future show, be sure to visit us at planefe.com. Visit the Everyday Wealth page and you can submit your questions right there. So let's begin with the news. What's been happening in the financial news? I was out of the country, so bring me up to speed. Oh, well, what's happening here is happening, I think, around the world when especially we're talking about inflation. It came in 8.5% year over year, which is another 40-year high. And you're seeing the impact everywhere, right? You go to the gas station, you go to the grocery store, you open your heating bills or, or try to buy a plane ticket, and they are much more expensive than they have been. But we're also hearing a lot about the word shrinkflation, mm-hmm. right? Which I is, remember asking you, I'm like, shrinkflation? What even is that? Right. And it's, it's just trickery. Exactly. Trying to keep prices the same, but reducing the amount of the product that you're actually getting. It's happening everywhere. Fewer sheets of toilet paper in the roll, fewer Doritos in the bag. The internet went a little crazy about that one. But what happened this week was that a consumer watchdog group called Account Accountable.us said, hey, hold on a second. Companies are actually using inflation as an excuse to raise prices and profit. In other words, price gouging. And they looked at the financial statements of 10 of the largest U.S. retailers over the past two years, so during the height of the pandemic, and saw them raising 
prices, but also recording record profits and handing out record pay to CEOs. And then I think the media also kind of jumps in and says inflation. And then there's a narrative around inflation, just this big, bad thing, when actually it's, you know, we're going to raise the price and we would like you to pay for it. Exactly. And consumers have shown that in some cases they're willing to do that, right? When you look at the price of airline tickets, for example, Delta's back in the realm of profitability. But prices have been going up because we've been stuck at home and we really want to get on a plane. So we're willing to pay those prices. You you mentioned Twitter. I mentioned Twitter. Let's just see where we are in the ongoing saga of Elon Musk. What's Elon Musk up to today, <laughs> right? Gene? And it's Ooh. been a bit of a ping pong match, right? I mean, since we last spoke about this, he revealed that he had become the company's largest shareholder. He was invited to take a seat on the board. He basically seemed to say, yeah, he was going to do that until he changed his mind and then a few days later made an offer to acquire the whole company for $43 billion. And since that happened, the company, which did not like his offer of $54.20 a share, adopted a poison pill. What is a poison pill? What does that mean exactly? Does that blow up the entire company or does it just somehow keep it from uh, someone doing a hostile takeover. That's what it does. And it's usually very successful. It's a mechanism voted on by the board that allows current shareholders to acquire more shares at a discount if any individual acquires more than 15% of the company. So basically what that does is dilutes the stake of the person who has bought that 15% immediately so they lose both their power and their money mm. in most cases and this is why poison pills are largely successful but we have not we haven't heard about these things very much since the 1980s and we're also starting to hear whispers at this point that there are a number of private equity firms who are starting to look at taking a stake in the company as sort of a white knight which is another another one of those bar- barbarian at the gates kind of terms. But it makes it very complicated to know what do you do with this stock, right? If you have it in your portfolio, how do you parse what your actions at times like this ought to be? As many of you know, this show is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines, which is the number one RIA in the country. That's according to Barron's. A little humble brag for the show. I like that. I like that. Slid it in. But I bring it up because, look, we talk about things that are complicated. We talk about things that are tricky, and we sometimes say, hey, you should be talking to your advisor about this. And if you don't have an advisor, then it's probably worth talking to somebody. You can reach out to Edelman Financial Engines at 833-PLAN-EFE, or you can just visit planEFE.com. I don't own any Twitter, which I, I should. because You I probably use, do, I, and you just don't know it. You own it if you own big, yes, that's diverse true. funds. So I probably do own some Twitter, but I've never purchased it extremely intentionally, although I, I use Twitter a lot. So we taped this show earlier in the week, as everybody knows, and right now the price of Twitter is below what he offered for it. So I think the question to ask yourself is always, would I buy the stock at this price? Do I want to own it at this price? And if the answer to that question is yes, then I think you hold on. And I think you wait and see what happens. But again, a really, really good question to ask your advisor because we don't look at these things in a vacuum. We look at them within the context of our overall portfolio. Mm -hmm. 
moving from the drama of Twitter to um, saving the Earth. Mm -hmm. Happy Earth Day to everybody. Um, Earth Day, I think, has gone a really long way since its beginnings. Early on, it was really a bunch of school children talking about taking care of the planet. And it's really morphed, I think, into being much more action-oriented for this year. The theme is invest in our planet, looking at ways in which you can financially invest in mechanisms that go to at least help sustainability and investing in the planet. And I think the reason that it's come out of the classroom and into the world is that we are looking at a world that is changing drastically. I mean, we see it, we live it every single day. You know, I have this vision in my brain. You know when you used to get the weekly reader? Yes. Right? I remember covers of the weekly reader devoted to Earth Day. Oh, interesting. I don't remember that at all. I just remember covering it as a reporter in the 90s. I think this idea of like, how can you be helpful in terms of investing and sustainability is an interesting one. And of course, you know, It's focused on climate change, all these really dire reports about how climate change isn't even something that we're debating anymore, right? It's here. It's what will be the devastating outcomes of climate change. And one really interesting statistic while we're talking about investing in climate change and investing in improving the quality of the earth, governments and companies would need to more than triple the amount that they're currently investing. And right now they're putting $600 billion into cutting emissions and encouraging clean energy. Well, if they want to actually do the trick, it looks like they're going to have to spend three to six times that every year. And if you're following the money in a way to boost your own returns, right, to do well while doing good, that's just something to really keep your eye on. Do you know the first time in modern day history, when people started to talk and worry about climate change, what decade would you think that is? Giving me a little quiz. quiz. When people started to really worry about it, I I think it was very recent. I don't think we were worried, worried enough until the last few years. They say in the 1950s, there was a scientist named Spencer. No, well, I I think you're talking about a population (laughs) being worried as opposed to this guy who seems to be one of the first on record talking about climate change. And he said, you know, it's a possibility for the 21st century, which seems very, very far away, that it should be a danger that we're prepared for. So he seems to be one of the very first scientists who went on the record. But I guess they say as far back as ancient Greece Mm. in AD 323, people debated whether some of the stuff that they were doing, like draining a swamp or cutting down a forest, might have an impact on rainfall that early on, having real conversations locally speaking about, hey, if we do this action, what does it mean to what happens in the local climate um, to us, which I thought was really fascinating that we've been having this discussion for a really long time. All of it presents a whole bunch of opportunities, I think, to really dig into the topic of investing. And, you know, the climate crisis and how we respond to it, it, it impacts so many different sectors of the economy. It creates risks for investors in ways that you might not even be thinking about. So, of course, the energy sector, that's the obvious place to start. 
For example, we already know about the demise of the coal industry. But on the flip side, we've got renewable energy, which is a potential long-term winner as we look to renewable sources of energy as a way to mitigate climate change. But there's so many other industries that are touched by this as well. And I'm thinking of real estate and banking and right. insurance The entire companies. state of Florida, if you're it, thinking yes. about real estate, right, which, I mean, we, since we live there uh, for part of the year, we fully are aware of what areas are are going to flood at some point and how risky, how problematic that is. If you look at air travel and how that has been impacted by climate change, and there's so many different weather-related incidents that seem to wreak havoc with the flight schedules today, food, agriculture, all are impacted. And now we've got the SEC and the Fed stepping in and proposing rules that would basically say companies have to disclose how climate change is affecting them. So being more transparent than they are today about the risks. Which I think is so important, right? If you're thinking about investing in a company, you really should be understanding what kind of risks they are potentially looking at. I mean, how well they are prepared for those risks. What are they thinking about when it comes to those things that we know are coming down the pike at us, especially around climate change? I think investors have the right to know that. I think it's an interesting to have uh, that formal acknowledgement of the risks by the Federal Reserve as well. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be wanting to move from just recognizing climate change poses significant risk to, you know, addressing the implications of those risks in a sort of quantitative way. Like, what does this mean in dollars and cents, not just to the economy overall, but potentially to investors? While we're talking about the response from our government to climate change, let's talk a little bit about climate change policy in the wake of the Russia-Ukraine crisis. I mean, what we've seen is that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has caused oil and gas prices to skyrocket, right? They were already high. Energy prices were already up. And when we look at the energy sector, it was already the best performing sector of the year. But prices are up and it's diverting attention away from climate change. Don't you think it's also forced people, and I would say many in Europe, to start thinking about where are we getting energy from, like rethinking all of that as well. So it's sustainability. What Europe gets a big chunk of its energy from Russia, that's now at risk and hugely problematic. Well, Germany especially, Mm. right? I mean, it's forced Germany to look to other measures to get their energy, to shore up their energy reserves, but also to embrace this ongoing global shift to renewable energy yeah. in a way that they hadn't before. And I think- So it's a distraction in a way, but also kind of like making people focus attention at the same time, if that's even possible to do. So the question, I guess, is what does it all mean for you as an investor? That's the question we'll ask on this show. As we look at how it impacts the world, we look at how it impacts your personal economy. Yeah. And are you willing to pay an incremental amount more in order to take some steps investing-wise that might be more sustainable, that might be more helpful to the planet? Can you do well by doing good, even if it costs you a little bit more? I think that's kind of an interesting question. When you start looking at those kinds of companies, again, it's a very large and confusing landscape. We're looking at funds that invest in alternative energy sources, but we're also looking at 
individual companies in solar and wind and hydropower and geothermal energy, which I know you're putting into your your home. Digging into my (laughs) home. It's like, oh, that's a messy little project that I had no idea that I was getting into when I got into it. A messy little project with some really great tax credits, by the way. And good for the planet. Listen, my husband knows all about the tax credit and I'm kind of like, I think this is important to do. We just finished putting solar on the house. We will never get to a completely zero in terms of what we have to spend on energy. But I think it's good trying to get as close to that as possible and to really think about renewables. Right. And there's a cost as consumers as well. So I've got a 2015 Volvo wagon. And I plan on driving this car until it dies. I I love my car. It's a Volvo, so it's going to last forever. It is going to (laughs) last such a long time. But I've been thinking about, is it time to put myself on the list for a Tesla or to start looking at another electric car because so many other companies are starting to play in this market, right? I just put myself on the list for the Ford F-150. You did? Yes. And it's all, let me promise you, it's a long list. You know, Volvo has said it will only make electric cars by the year 2030. My other car is a uh, VW Bug convertible, but Volkswagen announced also that it will be bringing out an electric version of the Beetle. I'm sure they'll follow with a convertible. And right, that's my favorite little Volkswagen. I am surprised at how long it's taken car makers. And maybe it had to take that long, right? Because people are obsessed with Teslas and waiting in line for Teslas. And I was surprised to see how long this list for the F-150 is, although they're letting people come in and, and try them. And then once you do the trial, then you go ahead and order the specific kind that you want. How long is it going to take you to get it? I haven't even gotten a chance to get in one yet, so I don't even know. We're not at that part yet, but probably a while. It's complicated, though, because when we're talking about buying something versus investing in it, you're looking at a very different decision-making process. And I'm a believer in investing in companies where you like the product and you think the product will continue to do well, but there are a lot of other factors at play here. And I think you have to be careful of greenwashing. What is that? Greenwashing is when a company is basically misleading consumers to believe that their product is more environmentally friendly than it actually is. And you also just have to be careful that as you pull these into your portfolio, you do it with your goals in mind, that you don't just get sucked in by the trends and by the noise and by the news. I know, obviously, the buying and the investing are two different things. Yes. But to me, they're not unrelated. For your investment to pay off, a lot of people need to go out and buy that Ford F-150. And I have found, as a consumer, I like to try things out and then invest That often is the portal for me to be an investor in something. Totally agree. And I've done the same. But then I think you have to look at, okay, does this make sense within the balance of my portfolio? And that's something that if you've got somebody that you're working with, I would ask the question, does this make sense within the context of everything else that I already own? Is this a bet that makes sense, you know, in terms of size, in terms of scope, in terms of how long I think I'm going to have to hold it in order to make back my money? And if you don't have somebody to talk to, you can always go to 833-PLAN-EFE or visit planefe.com to find a wealth planner who can work these questions through with you. Yeah, because I think often outside of something that you personally know and say, okay, I'm a consumer slash expert in this, I want to invest. 
I don't know enough about alternative energy sources or overall electric vehicles or overall even really what sustainable agriculture is or where are the funds that are focused on that, right? You need some guidance in how to think about how to invest in those things. Well, hold that thought because we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dig into all things ESG investing. I'm Jean Chatsky here with Soledad O'Brien. Stay with us. Those who've built their own financial success know that moving forward requires not just the right tools, but an in-depth knowledge of how to use them. That's why Edelman Financial Engines gives you a dedicated wealth planner supported by a team of experts. By combining human insight and advanced technology, we provide a truly tailored experience to your needs and goals. Call 888-912-0373 or visit efewealthplanners.com to get your complimentary financial plan. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Soledad O'Brien, along with Gene Chatsky. We're going to switch gears just a little bit and dive deeper into ESG investing. And the ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Investing. Now, as you know, if you listen to the show, every week we're guided by experts from Edelman Financial Engines. And if you're interested in talking with a wealth planner about your own personal situation, give them a call, 833-PLAN-EFE or visit planefe.com. Today, we're welcoming back John McCafferty, a wealth planner with Edelman Financial Engines. John, welcome back. Nice to see you as always. Great to be here. Thank Happy you. Earth Day, everyone. Thank you. Nice to have you, John. And, and joining us also is Neil Gilfeder. He is Senior Vice President of Portfolio Management also with Edelman Financial Engines, and he's got more than 20 years of experience, manages the team that is responsible for the operations and portfolio management, representing more than 1.3 million clients and $300 billion in assets. Neil, great to have you here and great to have you as part of this discussion. Yeah, I'm excited to be on the show. Well, thank you. Nice to have you. Happy Earth Day to you as well. We spent the first block talking about Earth Day, which then led us pretty quickly right into climate change, which has now led us pretty quickly uh, into how people are thinking about the climate and thinking about the planet when it comes to their investing. Give me a sense of the context around ESG. Yeah, so ESG, as you mentioned, is environmental, social, and governance. And the way this works is there are companies that examine this, and they look at different factors that capture environment, social, and governance issues. So environment, you've got things like carbon emissions, um, clearly related to climate change, which we've been discussing. You've got air pollution, resource depletion, all of these things that companies can do when they make their goods and services that can harm the environment. And so what happens is companies will provide scores on these. That forms the basis of whether a company has a good environmental rating or a bad environmental rating. One thing to note is you would think that, you know, for instance, energy companies would all get a bad rating on this, but that's actually not true. Some of them are more environmentally conscious than others. For instance, some will have coal tar sands in their portfolio, others won't, and will be focusing more on green energy. So there's subtlety within these. It's not as simple as one industry good, another industry bad. Mm. When we look at the other factors, um, social and governance, what, what do those take into account? S&G are really the ones that get looked at less in these, but these are also important. 
social looks at things like labor standards, hiring practices, whether the companies are treating their workers well, are they allowed to unionize? These factors uh, try to capture whether a company is a, a good citizen in the communities in which they operate. And then governance looks at um, how the companies are run. Do the companies take bribes? And this is particularly true less in developed markets than in some of the emerging markets. Are the companies taking bribes in order to do deals, providing services to, to governments, road building and so on? Also, is the oversight of a company properly set up? Companies have boards that run them. Are the boards too cozy with a CEO? Are they really examining what the company's doing to see if the plans are good? If you don't get this right, these can lead to bad decisions. So ultimately, is it sort of a measure of risk? Risk in terms of things you might not know about a company unless you kind of lift the veil a little bit, or at least they start releasing some of the information about how they're run, et cetera, et cetera. This is a big argument in the field. Does this expose risks that aren't picked up otherwise? So as I said, you've got companies that spend their time digging into companies' records to look at how well they do on these. The question, though, is do these ESG factors pick up risks that investors should be concerned about, not just from a moral or ethical perspective, but from an investment perspective too. Others will say that, you know, you may want to take account of them to make sure your investments align with your values, but that they don't really offer a source of return or risk that you should be worried about purely as an investor. I've been following ESG since before it was ESG. And before it was ESG, we used to call it socially responsible investing. Can you explain what the difference is? Yeah, there's a fundamental difference, I think, here. Socially responsible investing The goal was to influence behavior of companies. I remember as a kid in London, people lining up outside one of the banks to protest that they hadn't pulled out of apartheid South Africa. There were similar pressures on the company investment from investors. The argument was not that the company would do better by divesting, but the pressure was on to change the behavior of the company. When I started working in the investment industry in the 90s, what I saw then was um, examples about tobacco company divestiture. So people were putting pressures then on um, big pension funds to say, don't invest in tobacco. It's a harmful product. But again, the argument there was about doing the right thing. What people weren't making the argument then was about this is a source of risk and return that you, again, as a purely as an investor looking in financial terms, could benefit from. So many people are interested in this right now. I mean, if you look at the explosion of ESG, we know that about a third of all professionally managed assets these days are using ESG strategies. And Bloomberg actually projects that by the year 2025, so just a couple of of years from now, assets under management in ESG are going to be around $53 trillion. I mean, a huge amount of money, and it's being led by millennials, by high net worth investors, and by women. And I can just tell you that the conversation that we have at Her Money, um, and, and particularly in our private Facebook group, There are so many threads on ESG investing, so many threads on from from women who are really looking to do 
better with our investment dollars without compromising our returns. And so, John, I'm just wondering, have your clients and particularly your women clients been reaching out to you to talk about adding this to their portfolio or tweaking their portfolio in some way to more reflect their values? Definitely. I'm getting... I wouldn't say an overwhelming number of people reaching out, but definitely a noticeable amount of people. And yes, a higher percentage of them are women asking about this particular topic. And if I were to categorize how the conversation goes, number one would be the person who is proactively and consciously asking, I want a portfolio that has more of a tilt towards things that are aligned with me in terms of environmental issues, social issues, governance, there's your ESG. And then the other group of people, I would say, have concerns about what you referenced, Gene, about this greenwashing effect. You know, is this just some edict handed down from the Davos crowd of how, you know, they're telling us how we should all live our lives now and how we should invest our money. So it's on one hand, making sure and helping people get their dollars aligned with their belief system. And then on the other hand, uh, helping people become more educated, confirm some rumors, dispel others. In general, that's how the conversations go. Why do you think it's that category? Why is it millennials, high net worth individuals and women as the three that seem most interested in ESG at the moment? I think women are coming into our own as investors. Even if all of our money is in our retirement portfolios and we talk to our advisors, we want to know more about how to speak the language of investing, particularly ESG investing. Yeah, I think the idea of investing and connecting that investing to your values uh, makes a lot of sense, certainly for millennials, absolutely. That doesn't really surprise me about that grouping. So, Neil, as we sort of break this down, when we're looking at ESG investments, there was an article that came out recently in Barron's, and it, it looked at the costs of making these investments. And there are some people who are just critical. They believe that this is a bit of a marketing play and that the fees are really higher than they should be. Where do you shake out on that? Yeah, fees can be higher, but fees in the investment industry in general have been under a lot of pressure to come down. It wasn't that long ago that you would pay over 1% of the value of your mutual fund to the managers. That has been sort of crushed over recent years with the advent of low-cost index investing, where instead of relying on paying for analysts to look at every stock, you can come up with quantitative ways and run through it using technology. With ESG, you're seeing the same thing. There are low-cost options available. They can be still slightly higher than non-ESG options, but we're talking small differences here. It seems, though, like investors are willing to pay more if they feel like, hey, listen, as long as I'm living my values in my investing, that's worth a little more money. Kind of like we pay more for organic produce. Yes, that's right. I mean, there is this uh, cost difference, although the difference is less than it might have been a while ago. But yeah, there is a premium for this. People are paying more for this. But it's a competitive industry. There are fund firms and ESG firms competing on this, and that will tend to drive down costs over time. Can you talk about the place for ESG in 401ks and the obligation that plan sponsors have to you know, adhere to the fiduciary rules that they're accountable for? 
the first thing I'd note is we're starting to see 401k plans offer ESG options. There tend to be maybe one option in the plan, but we're starting to see this trickle in. So what this means is when you join a company or you enroll in the 401k, you'll see this menu of funds that you can allocate your retirement money to, and ESG options are starting to pop up in that lineup. Traditionally, the fiduciary responsibility of the 401k committee, so every company will have a committee that oversees the 401k, the fiduciary duty is in investment terms. So that means they've got to carefully examine the plan options. Are the plan options well-designed? Are they well-managed? Are the costs as low as they could be? You don't want your participants to be overpaying for their investment options. But Recently, they've started to take into account these ESG factors, meaning those can be legitimate fiduciary factors. A thing to note is even if they start offering more ESG options, this doesn't let them off the hook in investment terms. So they have to carefully examine these options to make sure they offer value for money, they're well constructed, and they help participants achieve their retirement goals. Neil, does Edelman Financial Engines have a point of view on ESG investing? Is it a yes? Is it a no? Is it a depends? I would say it's a a depends. (laughs) There's a pretty fierce debate going on in the ESG world. The people who are positive and people who are skeptical. The people who are positive, their argument is it's not just about doing the right thing, but there are actually risk factors like climate change or bad governance. These are factors that can materially infect the risk you're taking as an investor. In other words, if you don't take these into account, you may actually be hurting yourselves in terms of risk. On the other hand, you've got people who say there really isn't an investment case here. Companies are always looking out for risks. And if these risks are real risks, companies are going to start behaving that way anyway, regardless of ESG investing. And what we take is a more neutral view on this. Our job in portfolio management is to make sure that these are as close as we can get them to the underlying non-ESG solutions. And the idea of that is to allow people to invest their values while minimizing the difference in the returns they can expect compared to an underlying portfolio. And this is all about doing an additional screen. So we do everything we do on our regular portfolios, rigorous analysis of investments, diversification, a focus on costs. But we add another screen on this, another analysis, which is making sure that these reflect ESG values. This is a different world than it was a couple of decades ago. Um, We're able to build portfolios that are very similar in investment characteristics now. You don't have to go very different from a traditional diversified portfolio to reflect ESG values anymore. Assuming I am a client coming into your office, John, and I've heard a lot about this and I'm thinking this is a sandbox I might like to play in, how do you walk me through where it fits in my portfolio? What's the discussion sound like? Well, first, I'd want to get your thoughts on what matters most to you, given that it's your money and you want to align that with your belief system. I definitely want to get a good understanding of that. 
I then would want to walk you through the variety of portfolios that we do provide that have a focus on ESG investments. We want to make sure people understand that just because we're including ESG, our philosophy doesn't change all that dramatically. We still want to extensively diversify a portfolio. We still want you to maintain a long-term perspective. We're going to periodically rebalance the portfolio. We are going to seek out low-cost investments, and in this case, we're going to seek out investments with it more of a leaning or bent towards ESG. And I just want to walk a prospective client through that, make sure they have a good understanding of that, share with them some of the things we've already discussed about how there might be moments where you could see underperformance because of the weighting in this portfolio. You might see overperformance. It's just about setting proper expectations and making sure they're doing all the other things because whether you have an ESG portfolio or not, we still need to make sure that you're doing things like tracking your spending, saving enough money, those types of things. That never goes away. When we're thinking about the me economy, right, when we're thinking about my own money and and the place for this in my life, I think this is a personal decision. This is a values-based decision. But if I want to go down this road, my question for my advisor would be, can I expect returns that are equal to what I'd get from other investments or am I going to lose money? First off, you can never really predict returns. But I do try to set proper expectations. Ten years ago, I would say, yeah, you're probably going to get inferior returns. But now it seems the story has changed. It's about risk. There is a risk in a company not moving in this direction, whether it be actual legal risk, economic risk, or just the risk of being perceived as a bad company and then people stop investing. The returns in the last five years, there has been an improvement, um, at least according to the research that I've read. But returns are tricky because you can't sit there and promise someone a particular rate of return. So it does sound like today there are some really viable options. I'm just going to be full on nosy. What values are you seeing in your clients that they come to? What what do they care about? The most prevalent one is clean energy. Mm-hmm. That's the one that comes up the most frequently. Interesting. People don't get too much into the social aspect or the governance No one has really expressed this, but it it seems a lot of companies are taking the lead on this on their own. To John's point about clean energy, one of the funds that we're choosing is focused on clean energy. So we talk a lot about exclusion of, quote, bad companies, but there's also a part of ESG, which is inclusion of good companies. And that, I think, is, again, a change from the days of socially responsible investing. I've seen funds rolled out that are focused on companies that have elevated women to high positions, right? And they're including those companies and building their funds around that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really interesting. I'm not a big giant investor, but I'm an investor and those things are important to me Mm -hmm. and I'm glad Mm -hmm. that there is a vehicle. And I also like to protest and say, I don't like that this company is doing something morally reprehensible. Mm -hmm. I actually prefer being able to say, here are really great options and this is where you should put your money and your time and your investment. Yeah. And if you're listening to all this and have questions on how this strategy might apply to your portfolio, you can just give us a call, 833-PLAN-EFE, or you can visit us at planefe.com. That is our show for today. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer or a topic that you'd like us to discuss, just visit us. We're at planefe.com. Go to the Everyday Wealth page. And if you missed last week's show or any of our prior shows, you can download our podcast there 
or wherever you get your podcasts. A very big thank you to Neil Gilfeder and John McCafferty, both of Edelman Financial Engines. Thank you, gentlemen, for walking us through, as always. We truly, truly appreciate it. Have a great week, everybody. Join us for our brand new webinar, Eight Ways to Help Stay on Track Through Volatile Markets, on Tuesday, April 26th at 3 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern. Just register now at planefe.com. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Listen in each week to hear fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help you elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com. Find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.